You are listening to a podcast from The National. Two bombs ripped through two of the most crowded intersections in a war-torn Mogadishu this week, causing one of the deadliest attacks to take place in Somalia's troubled history. Whenever an attack like this happens, it's disruptive to the political life and halts attempts for a struggling city to come to any sort of functional existence. But when it happens to a country that is consistently labeled the most failed state in the world, it's devastating. Unfortunately, the world isn't as surprised by the scale of the attack as they are by the motives behind it, or lack thereof. Al-Shabaab, a Somali jihadist group whose propaganda arm would jump on an opportunity like this to promote its clout, have been uncharacteristically silent. This is one of the first attacks to not be claimed by any terrorist organization, not even ISIL. Those who died from the blasts were not only innocent, but were seemingly murdered for no reason whatsoever. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nasr al-Wesmi, and later in the show, we'll discuss how an unidentified object burned through the UAE sky Monday night, and how Iraq might be taking one step backwards in its struggle for stability. But first, we go back to Somalia, where on Monday, 300 people were killed when two of the biggest bombs to hit the capital rocked not only the country, but the entire Horn of Africa. Police reported the number of casualties at 20 initially, but when the images hit the wires, it became instantly clear that it was significantly more. Colin Freeman reported on the deadly attacks for the national. His familiarity with Somalia cannot be understated. The journalist was kidnapped by Al-Shabaab when he was reporting on the insurgency in its early years. He joined us on the show to shed some light on how this bomb will impact the city and what it means for the jihadist terrorist group. What's the country's reaction to the attack? Well, Somalia has seen more than its fair share of terrorist violence over the years, but um, this attack does really seem to have been beyond the pale just because of the sheer number of people killed uh, in excess of 300 we understand, according to the latest estimates, um, there's been a big reaction. There's been protests on the streets. There's been thousands of people turning up to give blood. And, you know, in and around the Somali diaspora all over the world, in America and elsewhere, I think people have been reacting as well on social media and so on. Um, I, I spoke to a guy I know who has a lot of Somali friends in Mogadishu. He said that there seemed to be barely a single person who didn't know somebody who had been killed or injured in the attack. From what I understand, uh, we've entered the search and rescue uh, phase of the attack. And it seems that more and more each day, there's been uh, heartbreaking news of, as you said, a friend, a family member or someone uh, being found uh, missing. Uh, so, I mean, what what is, I mean, you, you've spoken to some people. Uh, what is the general attitude of this uh, people in Mogadishu? Well, I mean, clearly there's a lot of anger directed at whoever did it is the, prim- the primary thing. This, this is it, sort of roughly in the region of 10 times bigger in terms of casualties than any previous attack in Somalia. Um, you know, despite the fact that uh, car bombs are a relatively regular feature of life there, you know, Mogadishu has not been as bad as badly hit as, say, somewhere like Baghdad. Car bombs are still a, a relatively uh, uncommon occurrence. Um, and therefore, one of this size uh, causes widespread revulsion. Um, the, the finger of blame has been pointed at Al-Shabaab, which is the, uh, the Al-Qaeda franchise that operates in Somalia. It's been there for about 10 years and is responsible for a lot of a tra- terrorist atrocities uh, over that time. 
Um, oddly, Al Shabaab have been strangely quiet in the uh, in the time after the attack. Um, normally, they've got quite a hyperactive propaganda machine that gleefully claims responsibility for all manner of things. This time, they've they've said nothing. Um, and uh, there has been speculation that the reason they've said nothing is that they realise they've, they've somewhat overstepped the mark uh, on this occasion, which is uh, perhaps a rather mild way of putting it. Right, and it seems that um, all aspects of society, and I mean even uh, officials from the government, seem to be pointing the blame at Al-Shabaab, but the oddity here is that the bomb was bigger than what they thought is capable coming out of al-shabaab yes i mean there's, there's been speculation for example that al-shabaab may have perhaps stolen the explosives that were used in the bomb um possibly from an african uh, from a base belonging to african union troops there are about twenty thousand african union troops based in somalia uh whose job is partly to fight al-shabaab and they've been quite successful in that um the bomb appears to have been roughly half a ton's worth of explosive, possibly a mixture of military-grade stuff and homemade stuff. And uh, various people have uh, speculated that in order to get their hands on that quantity of, of explosive, Al-Shabaab would, would, have, you know, would only have been able to get it by breaking into some sort of uh, um, you know, uh, military base belonging to the AU or some other force there. Although, as I understand it, that is still speculation at the, at the moment. Um, the other reason why this bomb appears to have caused so many casualties is that um, uh, when it went off, uh, there was a, 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 a petrol uh, tanker lorry parked nearby, um, you know, coincidentally, and um, uh, that exploded as well turning the whole area into a firebomb. So uh, it, it, was, it was clearly a very large bomb, but um, uh, the, you know, the, the circumstances of being parked next to the floor made it uh, considerably worse than it might otherwise have been. The question is, why now? I mean, wh- why is this attack coming at this time? Is there a uh, political landscape that has created this, or is it something else? Um, th- there's, there's no obvious landmark or, or um, you know or, or histor- historical landmark in, in terms of the of recent years um, a senior Pentagon general was visiting Mogadishu a couple of days before um, the, the, the government in Somalia is currently going through um, slightly difficult times in terms of deciding uh, where its exact allegiances lie there's been uh, um, some lack of clarity over where it lies for example uh, in terms of the ongoing dispute between the uh, Qatar and the rest of the Gulf states, um, because uh, the Somali government uh, um, you know, doesn't seem to know what, where, it, where it's going on that one. That's caused a degree of uncertainty, but there is no real obvious um, reason other than perhaps sheer opportunism uh, for al-Shabaab to do this. Um, the group has also been under quite a lot of pressure um, from uh, the U.S. Uh, from U.S. forces um, uh, in the, in the last year um, under Donald Trump, they've they've can, carried on or possibly even uh, ramped up their efforts with uh, about something like 300 U.S. special forces in Somalia working alongside local forces um, to track down Al Shabaab leaders and bases, and uh, also um, of course use drone strikes um, to uh, take out leaders remotely. So the group are feeling the pressure. It may be, therefore, that they, they do what they can, where they can. And uh, 
in that sense, you know, it, it, there's a there's a degree of opportunism that takes uh, uh, takes priority. The latest figure is that 300 people, or more than 300 people, have died from the attack, but many hundreds more uh, have gone injured. So, I mean, what is Mogadishu's uh, capacity in terms of the hospitals there to treat those that uh, have been casualties of this double bomb? No, not much. The the, the 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 two main hospitals in town, as I understand it, were pretty much overwhelmed uh, in the first couple of days. I mean, frankly, most you know, in a terrorist attack of that size, it would be unusual uh, for hospitals in nearly any part of the world, certainly in Africa, to to be able to cope. Um, there was stories of one hospital having something like 130 uh, charred bodies, most of the almost charred beyond recognition, being brought to the hospital. Um, there's stories of, you know, uh, thousands of people turning up to give blood. Um, but generally speaking, doctors complaining of being completely overwhelmed and and, and unable to cope, which is uh, perhaps not surprising. It, interestingly, there's there's also been reports that um, among the people who uh, come to donate blood um, is a gentleman called Sheikh Mukhtar Robo, who was a former um, Al Shabaab leader and a fairly notorious one, um, but who's now defected from the group prior prior to well prior to this attack. I should. Uh, I should say he's apparently been amongst those who've been uh, joining the queues to give blood today, according to some reports. Well, what about aid? Uh, I know that there, like you said, a lot of blood drives going on now. But I mean, what else is needed in Somalia? Well, I think the main thing for the the people who've been badly burnt or hit, um, you know, is immediate medical help. The Turkish government, which has a substantial presence in Mogadishu these days, both in terms of uh, um, trade links and um, air links, the Turkish airlines flying in and out of Mogadishu on quite a regular basis. They've been shipping people back to Turkey for medical treatment. I understand that's caused some concern amongst uh, some other elements of the, the sort of more Western-leaning international community there, feeling that um, perhaps Turkey has, has stolen their thunder um, a little bit there. Um, but really, it's a case of, you know, I think people are probably just taking whatever help they can get where they can get it. And, I mean, whenever we see an attack like this, uh, it, it sparks, you know, condemnations from not only the international community, but within the uh, country and the city itself. So, I mean, is this likely to bring uh, so the Somali people together? Is it likely to uh, unify the government to making more decisions and to, you know, avoiding a scenario like this in the future? Um, you would like to think so, yes, but, um, you know, sadly, life is tough enough in Somalia as it is, and often with these sort of things, you know, you get a dreadful incident like this, and, you know, we've seen it not just in Somalia, but elsewhere, and then within, you know, a couple of weeks, couple of months, life is back to normal, unfortunately, and um, this is not the first time that Al-Shabaab have carried out, a, you know, a very serious atrocity. You know, a few years ago, when they controlled parts of Mogadishu and they also controlled large parts of the countryside, um, you know, they, they subjected the Somali people to a pretty uh, tough regime. There would be beheadings, there would be stonings, there would be amputations, so on and so forth. So uh, it, it's not as if um, people are surprised that um, al-Shabaab behave in a, in a cruel or atrocious manner. Um, the group was also responsible for... Uh, a famine, um, indirectly responsible for a famine in 2009 as a result of um, stopping people from using, uh, they declared that um, Western NGOs, 
or foreign NGOs were no longer welcome in Somalia. And as a result of the of that, uh, there was a very severe famine in which tens of thousands of people lost their lives or came close to losing their lives. Um, again, you know, it, it didn't. It, it turned people against Al Shabaab for quite a long time, but ultimately did not make any material difference to their continued existence. Now we turn our focus back to the region. The movement of Iraqi troops is historically the precursor to some of the most impactful historical events in the Middle East. And now, it's happened again. This time, it was to take over the oil-rich state of Kirkuk, which Kurdish separatists claimed as part of their territory after sealing a freedom referendum last month. Iraq has claimed the deal unconstitutional and have taken action against what it considers an illegal move. The line was drawn when the Kurds claimed Kirkuk as historically theirs, a region of Iraq comprised of Arabs, Kurds, Turkmens, and others. Now I'm joined by Mina al-Durubi, who's been covering the latest in Iraq. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Could you give us a bit of a background over why the Iraqi military is in Kirkuk right now? Is the city historically Arab or historically Kurdish? Or is this just an attempt to gain access to the oil reserves that are in the region? Well, the Kurds are an ethnic minority. They are distinct from Iraq's Arab majority. They are found in three provinces in Iraq's northeast, Tog, Erbil, and Slemaniya, an area also known as Iraqi Kurdistan. The, uh, the Kurds were repressed under Saddam Hussein's government, but were granted a massive degree of autonomy under the Iraqi constitution that was set up um, after the U.S. invasion. So... The Kurdish regional government, also known as the KRG, was given exclusive control over Iraqi Kurdistan, um, in practice governing it as a quasi-independent state. So crucially, uh, the most important element here is the Iraqi constitution did not give the Kurds control over Kirkuk, which is an ethnically mixed area just south of Kurdistan, that just so happens to be home to 40% of Iraq's oil reserves. Yet the Kurds claim it as um, rightfully theirs, nonetheless, um, a claim fueled partially by historical grievances. Um, The central government maintained uh, uneasy control over Kirkuk until 2014, and that's when ISIL began sweeping in and across northwestern Iraq and down towards Baghdad. Um, in a wave that at times seemed unstoppable. And so Iraqi forces abandoned Kirkuk in an uh, an, an ultimately successful bid to stop ISIL's advance, which meant, uh, which created an opportunity and a window for Kurdish forces to move into Kirkuk and control it. Um, So between 2014 and until now, the Kurds controlled Kirkuk and all of its attend and all of its wealth. Um, Though legally speaking, it still belonged to Baghdad central government. And until recently, uh, the Iraqi government and the Kurds have been too preoccupied to fight um, ISIL um, to hash out their disagreement over Kirkuk. Now, the city is home to Arabs, Turkmens, Christians, and Kurds um, emerged as a flashpoint in the crisis after it was included uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan's independence vote last month. Again, even though it's not part of the Kurdish region. Kuk is 
important to Kurdish independence because without its oil, Kurdistan would not be an economically viable state. Um, the referendum, which was held on September the 25th, was opposed, was highly opposed by the United States and most of the international community. Now, the results showed that it had an overwhelmingly strong backing for independence from Baghdad. And this sent um, an unmistakable signal that, that the KRG was planning to quit Iraq and it wanted to take Kirkuk with it, which... In response, the Iraqi government could not tolerate. So on Sunday night, just two days, three days ago now, um, Iraqi armed forces, with along with Shiite militias, also known as Hajd al-Shaabi, moved into the oil-rich city and its surrounding environments. And by Monday, they managed to seize most of the city and it came under uh, Iraqi control. Isn't this likely to backfire, though, applying pressure on a group that has already uh, felt oppressed? Like you said, it's unlikely to solve the issue. So uh, what has the Kurdish reaction been? So, so far, the Kurds are in a very weak position at the moment because they've just lost one of the biggest sort of economically uh, viable city that, for, for them. Um, they've been very silent about the recent developments. Uh, the spokesperson for the president of the Iraqi Kurdistan region, Masoud Barzani, um, he's vowed to take revenge on what's happened, saying that the Kurdish reaction will be much stronger than what is expected. And Barzani is supposed to be making a statement later on today, urging the Kurds not to engage in clashes with the Iraqis. So we're yet to see what the response is. I just think they might be assessing some things. There might be some deals done behind closed doors that we're not aware of, which in the next few days will probably unfold. In regards to the attack, uh, we're getting reports of Iranian-backed militia as part of the uh, Iraqi military seizing the city. Does that have the potential of turning into another potential sectarian struggle? Uh, Iran has been quite outspoken on their opposition uh, to Kurdish freedom. So, I mean, what does that mean, their participation in the uh, attack? So the Iraqi units are dominated, or let's say are mostly dominated by Hajj al-Shaabi, which is another way of saying that they are Iranian-trained militias that operate within Iraq. So these militias are controlled by Qasem Soleimani, who is the commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps' overseas operations that provides training and weaponry to the Iraqi Shiite militias, which took part in the operation to oust Kurdish uh, forces from Kirkuk. The offensive took place after one day after the, paral, the powerful Iranian uh, general met with Kurdish officials in Kurdistan. It is now uh, Mr. Soleimani met with Kurdish officials. And what, what we know now is that he met with the officials from the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, which is one of the main um, ruling parties in the Kurdish region. Now, it's not known what was said between Soleimani and the PUK, but what we know is that within hours after their meeting, um, the Peshmerga fighters, also known as the Kurdish fighters that belong to the PUK, started to abandon their posts in Kirkuk, um, making way for Iraqi units to 
basically sweep into Kirkuk without putting any resistance. Um, meaning this could obviously indicate that a deal must have been made to avoid any kind of bloodshed and war in Kirkuk. So if Iran has an opinion, so does the rest of the region. Uh, I'm curious, I just want to know, what does uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and the GCC have to say about this? The Saudi king, uh, King Salman, held a phone call with on Monday with the Iraqi Prime Minister Haider Abadi, um, stressing the kingdom's support for unity, security and stability of Iraq and adherence of all parties to the Iraqi constitution, meaning that uh, Saudi Arabia rejects uh, or, let's say, opposes uh, Kurdistan's independence push, which Baghdad has always called unconstitutional and is illegal. Last month, also, the Saudi minister for Gulf Affairs, Thamer al-Sabhan, wanted to stand as a mediator between Erbil and Baghdad after Erbil decided to go ahead with its um, independence vote. And I'm guessing that uh, Saudi, Saudi Arabia and the rest of the GCC have a very similar stance on this. And I mean, when we're talking about uh, regional opinions, we have to consider America's stance. And it's a bit strange. I mean, this is freedom we're talking about. This is arguably America's bread and butter. But they've been uh, Kurdistan's biggest supporter. At the same time, they condemn their bullish approach to uh, freedom. So, I mean, what is the U.S. saying about these attacks? So the Trump administration appears content to stand on the sidelines of the attack so far. The State Department signaled on Tuesday that it was not opposed to the Iraqi military's intervention, saying that it supports a joint administration of Kirkuk. Uh, the State Department said that it's in touch with officials from the, from the central government and the regional government to reduce tensions and avoid further clashes and encourage dialogue between the two sides. And it's also calling for um, restoring joint administration over the city, um, again, in line with the um, Iraqi constitution. So, so far, they've sort of taken a very sort of neutral approach to the situation. Last night, images and videos of an unidentified object burning through UAE skies emerged on social media. One of our senior reporters, James Langton, witnessed the oddity and now joins us to shed some light on what it might be. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, uh, like a lot of other people last night, I looked up. In fact, I just got out of my car, having come back for work, and there in the sky was something that I really couldn't figure out what it was. It was this great orange streak um, moving about the same speed as it looked like an aircraft. And in fact, I thought initially it was maybe something coming into land at the uh, Abu Dhabi airport, which is which is close by. But I realized that, first of all, it was in the wrong place. And also, it was actually multiple streaks of light. Uh, and in the middle of it uh, was this burning, orange, uh, burning red, bright red ball. Uh, and I just couldn't figure out what it was. I could see it for about three or four seconds. I rushed into the house. Uh, family were sort of sitting there going, ah, oh, you're home, you're home. And I was going, come outside quickly, come outside. Uh, but by the time I got outside, um, it had gone, and all I could hear was the call to prayer. And it was like, did I imagine the whole thing? Um, but now we know it's probably part of a Russian space rocket. Right, but the reaction at first was a bit confused. Uh, it was a meteor at first, and now it's a ship or a space rocket decaying in space. I mean, 
which one is it and why? Uh, well, I guess, uh, I mean, if you, if you look at what people were saying on the night, every, it was everything from uh, a crashing uh, Chinese space uh, uh, station um, to a meteor shower. And nobody, I think, actually suggested it was a UFO, but we kind of were getting there. Uh, and then in the middle of this, uh, the Dubai Media Office uh, tweeted something from the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center saying, relax, guys, it's a meteor. But by the morning, um, there was a different story beginning to emerge, which was that it was part of a Russian spaceship that had been supplying the International Space Station, and it was coming back to Earth as planned and was just burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. Um, what we're still not sure about is which bit of the spaceship it was. Uh, there's a it, Basically, when you send something up to the International Space Station, you have the, the capsule with all the goodies inside it that sits on top of a rocket. So it could be the rocket that sent the latest mission up there, burning up, or it could be the capsule from the previous mission, which they've kind of finished with, filled it with a whole load of rubbish that they don't need anymore, and basically kicked it out back down to Earth. I mean, have we finally entered that future where space trash is a thing? And, and I mean, it brings the question, uh, I mean, who's responsible for space debris? Well, this is actually a good thing. You, you know, This is not up there. The problem we have is, is all the stuff that's been up there for years, and which is nobody ever thought about it, and just, you know, being messy people we just left a whole lot of uh, stuff up in space so there's there's i think literally hundreds of thousands of, of stuff in space bits and pieces some of it very small some of it large all drifting around uh if you're an astronaut it's not funny if one of these things hits you because it can decompress your suit or it can smash a hole in your spaceship so it, it's, it's a big problem so actually sending it back down to earth and having it burn up in the atmosphere is actually a pretty good way of of, of dealing with this I mean, you were tuned into the social media, uh, and I believe you spoke to some people. I mean, wh what is what is people's reaction to this? It must have sparked some sort of excitement. Yeah, I mean, it's not every day you see something like this. I mean, for, for me, this was this was I'd never seen anything like this before. Um, I've seen uh, the occasional meteor before, but they're normally like little tiny flashing points of light that disappear as soon as you've seen them. But this was this was like. This was like something out of Independence Day, you know, the bit where the uh, where they finally destroy the the alien spaceship and it's it's coming back to Earth and and breaking up as it falls. I mean, it wasn't quite on that scale, but it was. It looked like something big. It looked like something that was disintegrating. Um, it, it didn't look like a meteor. And I mean, this must be on people's uh, radar around the world. I mean. Whenever anything shows up in the sky like this, you have, you know, people around the world, the people who, you know, want to believe, uh, coming up with theories on what it might be. I mean, have you come across any of that? I don't think anyone uh, has uh, anything sinister about this. Um, of course, we haven't found whatever it was yet. Uh, the best bet that if it was uh, part of a space launch, these things are usually that they're calculated so that they come down into the water, not onto land. Uh, so the best guess is that is that when whatever this was hit hit the earth, it splashed into the water and it's now several hundred meters underneath the surface. I'd like to thank my guests, Colin Freeman, Mina Durubi, and James Langton for joining me on this episode. I'd also like to thank Kevin Jeffers for producing it. You can find this and all the other national podcasts on the iTunes store or wherever else you get your podcasts from. This has been another episode of Beyond the Headlines. I've been Nasr Westmi. Thank you for joining us and goodbye.